0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I want to give a little bit of an update as to uh, where we've been and uh, where we're going in this series. As Tim just mentioned, if you're a guest, uh, we have children's ministry up through sixth grade, and we were just recommend, up through fifth grade. We just recommended that you. Uh, take advantage of that, because we're doing a series called Redeeming Sex, and uh, so I'm aware that about 13 and up are in the room, and so I've, uh, this is the third message, and so far it's, we've been okay. Uh, I trust that will continue to be the case in trying to communicate, knowing we have a broad, uh, broad range of ages uh, in the room. Um, And uh, thank you for your responsiveness and uh, encouragement. A number of folks have uh, have given me questions or or made comments, talked to me after the service, emailed me. Uh, A lot of different ways. People have reached out, commented, asked, are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about this? What about that? Various things like that. Uh, One guy told me last Sunday night after church that he really wanted to amen, at various points, but wasn't sure about the appropriateness of that, and then also said that before church, his wife had sharpened her elbow, and so she was ready to give the jab if he inappropriately—I mean, I think it's always appropriate to amen in a sermon, though in a series like this, uh, you'd want to make sure you do that at the right point, that's for sure. You wouldn't want to be your timing to be off on your amen. Redeeming sex. This is what we've been talking about, um, and I'm just going to give you an overview for the rest of the series, which will go uh, a number of weeks. I'm still still working out exactly how long I'm going to go, but uh, here, here's what we talked about. We talked about the fact, we kind of looked at what's called a biblical theology, how God deals with a subject through the history uh, sort of of the scripture. So we've started, we've had two messages on creation uh, and, and what sex was uh, created to be so we 've looked primarily at the purpose of sex prior to sin in the world that 'd be in chapters one and two of Genesis where adam and uh, Adam and Eve lived before uh, the fall so we 've talked about that tonight we 're going to talk about the fall. And what's the problem? Where does sin and sexual sin come from? So we haven't talked about sin hardly at all tonight. We'll be speaking about that almost the entire message. Uh, next, next week, uh, we'll do a couple of messages or so on the theme of marriage and sex. And then I'm going to do a message on singles and sex. And then I'm going to address, uh, do a couple of messages addressing topics. Uh, so I'm going to do a message on homosexuality. Uh, I'm going to do a message on pornography. uh, And I may do a message on gender. I'm not sure about that. That may be covered elsewhere. So that's kind of what's coming up. So next week, if you want to get ahead in your reading for next week, you could be reading in the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. That's what we'll be looking at next week. So let me review what we talked about in the first two weeks. We talked about God's purpose for sex. And we looked at four purposes and one ultimate purpose over the last two weeks. So we said one purpose of sex is uh, for the consummation of marriage. That after a couple, this is what Genesis two says, that Adam and Eve uh, they um, they ultimately were joined together and became one flesh. And so after a couple takes. Public vows to be married, uh, vows and commits to marriage, then the, the way the marriage is consummated is by sexual union. And then every time a married couple has sex, they are uh, reaffirming that they are in a one flesh relationship, which is not just the joining of their bodies, but the joining of all that they are together. Jesus says the two shall be one, is what Jesus said. And so that's, that's sort of the purpose of the, uh, of the, of the sexual union. Uh, Someone asked a very good question, which I want to just uh, very briefly address. And someone said, what what about in a case where they were asking, what if you are in a situation where you are medically uh, unable to have sexual intercourse and unable to uh, consummate the marriage? Where does that leave you? Well, uh, before the Lord, you were absolutely married based on the commitment uh, that you made and the vows you take. Uh, before the Lord to commit your life to another person. Uh, and if there is some kind of medical uh, situation that prohibits that, that does not prohibit a person from being married. So I want to be very clear on that uh, on that point um, as well. So even though I was saying it's consummation of marriage, there are maybe some uh, situations where people have uh, unusual challenges that they are facing. So I wanted to mention that. Okay, secondly, procreation. So not only consummation, but procreation. That is the having, of, uh, the, having children. And so every sexual act isn't to lead to the having of children, but in the context of marriage, children are a blessing and are to be welcomed, and certainly it's a possibility. And so that's why sex within marriage is God's design. Number three was expressing love. It's a means for a husband and wife to express love to one another uh, in a meaningful way through communication, physically uh, communicating their love for one another. And lastly, we talked about it being uh, one of the purposes is pleasure. God has given a gift that the husband and wife may love one another and experience uh, pleasure in their sexual union as well. And then, ultimately, we said that the overarching purpose is to glorify God. First Corinthians 6, Paul is addressing sexual sin in it, and he's calling people not to sin sexually. And he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So the ultimate purpose purpose for our sexuality is to glorify God through it. Um, and uh, so we talked about that. So that's, that's what we've talked about so far. What, were, what are the purposes? What was sex uh, created for uh, and for whom and in what context is it to be expressed and experienced? We talked about sex is a gift from God. Adam and Eve uh, enjoyed a perfect sex life prior to the fall because they lived in a sin-free and a suffering-free world in the Garden of Eden. But it is not that way anymore. Perfect sex, perfect desires, perfect imagination, perfect relationships don't exist because there are no sin-free people on the planet since the fall. So after the creation, God creates everything for good use. And then there is the fall. That's Genesis three, where Adam and Eve sin by disobeying God and eating from the tree that God commanded them not to. And here's what's so important about that is that in eating that fruit, they really sought to be God themselves. They sought to be like God, God forbade the action, so they are usurping God's authority. They are making themselves like God to rule their own world, to determine their own rules. Sure, God gave a standard. God gave a requirement. But what's wrong? With crossing the line and eating the fruit, so they they uh, they determined their own rules, their own truth, their own values, their own gave themselves permission as if they ruled and as if they were sovereign uh, over their own lives. And since that time, which is called the fall, since that time, everything has changed, and that is with all of us. That is the nature of all of us. We are all born with a sin nature. We are all born with the temptation to live separate from authority, independent from authority, making our own decisions, determining ourselves what we think is right and wrong for us. And particularly, we are independent of God's authority. So the passage we're going to look at tonight in Romans 1 addresses this. It is a passage that talks about the results of the, the language, the fall is not used in here, but the results of the fall and what is our nature like now. Because this is the problem, not only with sex, sexual sin, but with all sin. So let's read Romans 1, 18 through 32, then I'll pray and we'll jump in. and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base debased I'm sorry, a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness: evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray tonight that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears and open up our hearts to your evaluation of our condition and of the condition of our world. And we pray, Lord, that we would, just as we sang, we surrender. Lord, we just surrender ourselves to your truth tonight. And we pray that you would knock down various strongholds in our thinking where untruth has gained a foothold in our minds, where the lies and the deceit that we have taken in through so many sources have gained ground and have influenced our thinking. We just ask you to give us your thoughts, your mind. Lord, we want to know truth. We want to have an accurate understanding of our own nature and of our own temptations. And most of all, we want to have an accurate uh, understanding of your rescue, which we sang about tonight. So show us Christ and the gospel in power tonight. Even as we look at the darkness of our own hearts, would you show us the light of Christ and the hope of the gospel and the power that is displayed in your love for us through the cross and resurrection? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here is the context. Paul is writing about the glorious gospel. Back in verse 16, here's what comes before this He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is the good news, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, verse seventeen, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, "The righteous shall live by faith." So, what he's saying is, here's what's happened in the good news of the gospel: what Jesus has done, that the righteousness that God requires of us, God has provided for us. And this is different. This makes Christianity different than every other religion, every other faith. It stands in separation from every other faith in this that it is not a religion that teaches that we work our way up to a holy god to become more and more like him to be accepted by him rather god worked his way down to us we could say god came to us in jesus he lived a perfect life a righteous life he died for our sins so that now if we believe in him his righteousness is given to us as a gift. So that's what he says for righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. So God has given his righteousness to everyone that believes. So that's the gospel. Now Paul is going to take a couple of chapters and talk about why we need this good news. Why is it good news? If everybody's basically good, what I just said is not good news. If all we need is an example, so Jesus show us how to do it because we can do it, then what I just said is not good news. It's only good news if we are in desperate need. If we are in desperate need for deliverance... For forgiveness for new life, then the gospel really is good news. And so Paul goes into this great detail to show that we are all sinful people. And he's going to start with the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people. And then he's going to go to the Jews and he's going to say, whether you have the Bible or don't have the Bible, you're in need of forgiveness because you're a sinner and you're accountable for your sin, whether you're a Jew or Gentile. That's the point he is making. And so what he says... um, Here in verse 18 is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And all of us are ungodly. All of us are unrighteous. In chapter 3, Romans 3.10, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. And so he's saying God's wrath is now being, its present tense is now being revealed. Now, what is the wrath of God? We don't like to hear about the wrath of God. Our culture, this would be one of the uh, likely misunderstood teachings of Christianity, but even where it's understood, this is something that culturally we are very, very averse to, the idea of God's wrath. Well, the word wrath here, speaking about God's wrath, is not talking about emotional anger like we observe in humans. He's not speaking, if you grew up in a family with an angry parent, He's not saying God is like your angry dad who just has this outburst and yells at you and throws something across the room, and it's unpredictable and it's uncontrolled. That's not what he's speaking about. That is human, sinful anger, and that's not what he is talking about. God is not flippant. God doesn't just fly off the handle. God's not irrational. What it is, is the wrath of God is, as one commentator defined it, the necessary reaction of a holy God to sin. The necessary reaction of a holy God to sin. That God, as a righteous and as a holy God, necessarily responds to sin with opposition, with judgment. That's what it is. It's his reaction, his necessary reaction to sin. Now, why do we talk about this? Well, first of all, because if it's true and people are under the wrath of God, then the most unloving and irresponsible thing possible that we could do is to tell them they're okay, to tell them that they're fine with God, to tell them that they're good, to tell them that their sexual choices that are opposed to Scripture are fine and good because we all do that kind of thing because the majority of people in our culture approve of that, because nobody's perfect, because whatever. To allow people to self-diagnose their own heart and their condition before God when God has clearly diagnosed it, to allow them to live in that without talking about it, I would be the most unfaithful pastor imaginable if I did not point out passages of Scripture like this to us at times. If you're a guest, I do not preach on the wrath of God weekly, regularly, or anything like that. I do talk about judgment and the grace of God who, uh, who uh, frees us from judgment in the gospel, but this isn't a theme for every week. Um, but it's, 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 it, he's tying this into our sexuality in the passage we just let read, and that's why it's very important. As one person illustrated, they said, For a doctor to know that a patient has terminal cancer and to allow that patient to self-diagnose themselves falsely, Oh, it's not lung cancer. It's just a cough. It's just an allergy. That's what the person thinks. So to allow them to live with that rather than telling them the truth would be malpractice, to the greatest degree. It'd be the most loving thing to tell them how God really views their situation, or uh, how, how, uh, the, the objective truth about their situation, in this case, how God views it. Secondly, if we don't understand the wrath of God, Tim Keller wrote, if you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill, empower, or move you. Most, most times when we're not amazed by the gospel, it's because we don't see our need. Most of the time when we are familiar with the good news, and it's just moderate news, it's just familiar news, it's not blow you away good news. Most of the time when we are not dazzled by the good news, it is because we don't see our need. Because if we could see our need, we would be amazed, we would be breathless at what God has done for us. So God's wrath, his opposition to sin, which is in the Scripture and we need to understand, is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 18 um, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he made. So they are without excuse. So he says we are in our unrighteousness, but we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. Everyone knows there is a God. That's, what the, that's not my opinion. That's what the Bible teaches. Every person on the planet knows there is a God. For what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them for his individual attributes, his power and his divine nature are perceived through the creation of the world. Every person on the planet who can think, I mean, obviously some people wouldn't have, uh, you know, might have, might have a limited ability to process and to think, but anybody who can think has an ability to think, can look out and see the creation, Paul says, and know that this just didn't happen, but that there is a creator and not only that but that creation reveals that this god is powerful and that god is deserving at least of our investigation and pursuit and if the if the god of the universe can do that can create everything then that god rules that god has authority we see his power and his divine nature it is clearly perceived So the creation testifies that there's a creator. It's plain to everybody, but what we do is we suppress the truth. Now, what does this have to do with sex? He talks all about sex in the coming verses, so we're getting to it. Um, So we suppress the truth. That is, suppress means repress. So people who believe the Bible are not repressed. People that do not believe in God are repressed because they are repressing the truth that God has created everything. We know that, but we don't like that we don't because of the fall we want to rule we want to make our rules we want to do things the way we want to do them which could be rank sin or could be religion could be the most religious person in the world who just wants to do their best to be approved by god that's the same thing so it could be terrible what we would think of as you know really grotesque sin or it could be it could be doing really churchy things to make ourselves right with god doesn't matter it's all repressing what god ultimately teaches us about himself And so we repress, we smother it, we conceal it, we censor it, we censor that truth. That there is a God who is all-powerful and I am accountable to him. We censor that truth from the earliest age. We want to get around that. Nobody wants to be responsible to a perfect, all-powerful authority. That's what he says. They, they, they suppress, verse 18, everyone knows, but they suppress the truth. What can be known is revealed. And this is where sin comes from. The failure to submit to God is God. To suppress what we know to be true. That minimally we know someone created this and that someone rules. We repress that. And so as a popular saying goes, there is no God and I hate him. That's, that's how the unbeliever lives logically our li- their life. There is no God and I hate him. I will live on my own. This is the nature of man. And so what do we do? We look elsewhere, all of us, for God substitutes. We look elsewhere for God substitutes. So the first command is you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command of the Ten Commandments. Normally, if you ask someone, studies have been done, interview people, what's the, what's the worst commandment to break? And people, you, you, not unanimously, but majority say you shall not kill, which at a human level and in terms of direct harm to someone yes that is the worst you can't do anything worse to someone than take their lives but it's the first commandment that by breaking that we break all the others we have other gods before him we have other idols that we pursue and serve before him so this is what paul is wanting to understand He's wanting to teach the bible is wanting to teach us that we are all responsible for our sinful actions including our sexual sin, because we worship the creature rather than the creator. That's where he goes next. They've all been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And he goes on and talks about how we create images of God and worship them. So here's what happens. In this passage of Scripture, there is now a threefold pattern that describes human sin. It, the pattern is this, number one, they knew God, number two, or we, we'll say we, number one, we know God, number two, we reject the knowledge of God and choose idols, and number three, God gives us up or gives us over to our sin. We know God, we reject God and choose idols, God gives us up to our sin. That, that's what this passage, three times that happens. And it happens, first of all, in Romans 21 through 20, uh, verses 21 through 24. For all know they they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, they knew Him, but they didn't honor Him. We know that there is a God, but we don't honor a God. We, we know there's an eternal, eternally powerful God, but we do not acknowledge His right to rule creation. We do not search out a God who determines right and wrong. We want to be our own gods. We want to determine what is right and wrong for us. It also says they did not give thanks to Him. So though we know innately that we owe our existence to someone else, we didn't create ourselves, this planet didn't create itself, that I have life and someone gave me that, and because of that I should find find a way to thank that God. But we don't give thanks to God by nature, even though He's infinitely worthy of our thanks. We're dependent on Him for our lives, and yet we suppress the truth, we smother that truth, and we try to live independently on our own. And we, instead of worshiping Him, we give ourselves to futile, Useless thinking is what verse 21 says. We create our own view of the world. What is futile thinking? So they don't believe, they don't, we know there's a God. Verse 21, we don't honor God, we don't give thanks to God, we become futile in our thinking. We create our own truth. We create what we think is reasonable. We create what we think is right and wrong. And our hearts are darkened. And as long as we deny God's right to rule creation and us, we will never know how life works. We'll never understand really how life is supposed to be lived. Each person suppressing the truth goes their own way, determines their own truth. That's why Proverbs fourteen twelve says there is a right that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that is no more clear. That is clear in no place. Um, it, is, it, is, it is more clear in our sexuality than any other place that there's a way that seems right to a human, but the end of it ends in death, emptiness, not as God created. So by nature, we don't worship the Creator, but we do worship. We always worship. We have an innate desire to worship something or someone. So all humans have hopes. All humans put their security somewhere. All humans are living for something. We're all longing for something. We're all chasing something. We're all celebrating something. Why? Because we are worshipers. So we know there's a God, but Paul says, but we do not worship him. We do not worship him, but we, we don't stop worshiping because everyone has a hope. Everyone has a thought, if I could just have that, my life would be happy and have meaning. If I could just achieve that, if people just saw, thought that about me, then I would be secure. We all have longings, we all have dreams, we all have this stuff that we are chasing. Why? Because we are worshipers. There's all, there's, we all have stuff, people or things that we respect, that we treasure, that we value because we are worshipers. So they know God. Number two, they exchange God for idols. Look at verse 23. So they keep worshiping, even though they don't worship God. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they become fools. 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, instead of acknowledging our dependence on God, instead of gratefully living for Him, whatever we know of Him by creation, instead of doing that, we live for created things. See, we're not really independent. We just, we're dependent. We just change our dependence. And here's what Paul writes. Instead of being dependent on the Creator, they are dependent on images, statues, totem poles, idols, that look like a man, that look like a bird, that look like a creepy crawly thing, a snake, whatever. So people, instead of trusting God, they begin to create idols for themselves because we are worshipers. And if we reject God, we will find something, someone to worship. Now, we can look at that and say, man, that is foolish. No one in the modern world worships idols. Well, that... First of all, that's not true. People in the modern, people in Frisco worship physical idols. So that's not true that people in the modern world don't, but many don't. Most don't. We, we have other things that we put our hope in, don't we? We may say that is foolish, but we do the same thing. So you may not have a statue of a of a winged god. You may not have like Zeus on your mantle. You may not have a you know, uh, worshiping some kind of a, a fowl, a bird in your house. You may not bow down to a statue, but we do worship. We do the same thing. We trust. Where do we trust? We may not trust a statue, but we trust our money, and we're fearful when we don't have it. We trust in our health, and we panic when it looks bad. We trust our wisdom. We put our hope in a person we put our hope in a marriage. We put our hope in a child. See, even a good thing like a marriage or a child, even a good thing can become an over-desire in us where we trust and rely on that instead of God. So we do that. We dream about possessions. We long for a new house. We contemplate and, and, and wrap our thoughts around a new car. We want to look different and we want new clothes and, and new technology. And we we put our hope in a vacation to get away from it all that will change our lives, or at least for a short period of time. So we worship as well. We may not have a stick, but we have a pile of money and a credit card and a vehicle. At the end of the day, a a house is is no greater object of worship and trust uh, than a totem pole. It's the creation instead of the creator. It's all the same. If you're worshiping the creation, it does not matter. It does. It's all the same. An idol is anything that's a substitute for God. So Paul's saying, everyone knows there's a God, but we don't submit to him. We turn somewhere else and we submit ourselves elsewhere into other things. And so any substitute for God, food can be a place. Where do we go for comfort? We even call it comfort food. Where do we go? We go to food. We go to alcohol. We go to drugs. Anything we trust in, lean on, rely on. Anything that that we have to have to be fulfilled, we have to have have to be content. We have to have to be happy. Those are God substitutes. And sex is a common, near-universal God substitute. And that's why Paul addresses it twice in this passage. So we can refuse to view God as ruling over us, and receiving his design and purpose for sex, and we can pursue sex independently of him, and then we are pursuing something on our terms, that is idolatry, an idolatry that never delivers what it promises, and in the case of sex in particular, it is something that is an an idol that can be enslaving if we give ourselves to it. It seeks to master, sex, sex seeks to master and control those who look to it for their ultimate good. It's an enslaving, an addictive, even addictive. I'm going to talk about that when we talk about pornography, the, the addictive nature of sexual desire. So Paul, in this passage, is saying that claim to the wise, they, they became fools, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the everlasting God, for images. They worshipped idols. Verse 24, we'll get to this in a second, but I want to point out one thing. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So they ended up being sexually immoral. God gave them to their lusts to use their bodies with other people to commit sexual sin. I don't know if you know this, but sex and worship, they go together. They go together. In the Bible, they frequently go together. Uh, when, when God's people in Israel went out and chased other gods, it often involved sex. Sex with temple prostitutes for the pagan gods. Sexuality, I mean, uh, in the, the pagan cultures in their temples, uh, sexuality, orgies were commonly a part of their uh, their celebration of worship. And so Paul in the New Testament has to tell people, don't do that because that's their culture. That's how people worship their gods. And so sex and worship are frequently Go together in Scripture when God's people went out with, uh, followed other gods. Do you know what he called that? He called that adultery. That's what the book of Hosea is about. He's talking that, he's saying when you're worshiping another god, it's like you're sleeping with another man's wife. The guys or sleeping with another uh, woman's husband, if you're a lady. That's what he says. It's like, it's like going to bed with somebody you're not married to when you worship another god. Sexuality and worship tied together. The same is true in our culture. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned magazines at the, at the uh, checkout stand, which I'm not going to show images of them, but I am going to quote one. Uh, checkout, at, at the grocery store checkout, there are certain magazines where all the articles are on uh, advertising sex because we live in a world that is sexually unfulfilled because whenever you choose to chase an idol, you never, it never satisfies, it never delivers. So you always have to have a new trick, a new technique, a new something that will promise. But, but talk about sex and worship. This is the clearest I've seen. This was the title of the article. Oh, my, is women uh, women's magazine? Oh, my goddess. The sex move he will worship you for. That's straight up Bible. That's Romans 1 right there. I'm not saying the Bible endorses that. I'm not saying straight up Bible that way. I'm saying that straight up biblical description. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. When you exchange God and you look to something else, you will worship something else. And they don't think, the person who wrote that doesn't really think it's a religious experience. Probably, they might, but probably, but they're using that metaphor language. And it's in our culture, and that's what the scripture is saying. He will worship you for this sex move. This is the desire, the craving of his heart. And you are his goddess. That's exactly what the passage is talking about. So, first of all, uh, he says, we all know God. We all reject God and look for idols. And number three, God gave them up. What does he give them up to? The lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God lets people follow their over-desires. It can be a good desire that's just too strong. Sex is a good thing in the right context. It's a gift of God. God created it. Everything about it is a gift from God when used in the wrong, in the right context. But but when it becomes used in the wrong context, it's something we look to satisfy ourselves to bring us happiness or meaning in place of God. And here's what God does. He just lets people go their way. He lets people go their way. He lets people pursue impurity. Sexual impurity, dishonoring their bodies one with another. What kind of sexual impurity is he talking about? Well, he makes it very clear in a few verses, but here it doesn't. So I think it's best to understand this broadly. Any kind of sexual sin, any kind of sex, he says they're lusts. So any kind of sexual lusts, any imaginations or fantasies for someone you're not married to, romantic fantasies of someone you're not married to, pornography, any of the kind of mental sins. Um, actual sins, fornication, two unmarried people having sex, adultery, one or both of the people being married, but having sex with someone, not their spouse. And there's a catalog of sexual sins in the Bible. I don't need to run through them all. But I think that's all that that, that's the impurity he's talking about. Ultimately, he let them pursue what they wanted, which was worshiping the creation and pursuing the creation instead of the creator. And when you think of the wrath of God, what do you think of lightning bolts? Thunder, earthquakes, this is the wrath of God. Letting people sleep around with no intervention. That's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed. How? He lets people go into their lusts. He lets people just pursue their way and, and there's no intervention. He's just letting them have what they want. Here is the wrath of God in this life. It's letting people have what they want uh, that, it, that is opposed to him. And we think that's freedom, but it's judgment. That's why when I've encountered particularly young people who get caught doing something that's been secret, this is what I always tell them, a young person who gets caught by some authority, they get in trouble at school, they get in trouble with their parents, or they get in trouble with the cops or some other law enforcement. They get in trouble. So they're doing something wrong, and it's exposed. They're busted. They're caught. The secret's out. The hidden sin was revealed. It doesn't have to be sexual sin. It could be anything. It could be sexual sin. It could be drugs. It could be anything. Anything that's sinful. This is what I always try to make the point to someone in this situation. This is the mercy of God that you got caught. God is not judging you because you got caught, God would be judging you if he let you, you go your way in secret. And your parents didn't know, and the school didn't know, and the cops didn't know, and the leaders down at the church didn't know, and your boss at your part-time job did Whoever the authority is in your life, if he let you just keep, God let you keep stealing, and you never got caught stealing, that's the judgment of God. Allowing you to pursue your lusts and chase because they never deliver. So it's more and more and more and more until your life is over. And you face God. Sexual immorality promises, but it never satisfies because we are pursuing our own way, the creation and not the creator. Sex within marriage is a gift from God that we use to glorify the Lord, to honor the Lord, to enjoy as a couple in the way that he has given it. And then he is honored and glorified. And then it is... Uh, it is fulfilling, enjoyable, rewarding, whatever, whatever words you want to think of pleasurable. One author said this sexual immorality would not exist if it did not promise so much pleasure, fulfillment, release, satisfaction, fruitfulness, life, escape from frustration. But what it promises, it cannot perform always in the end. It disappoints and leads to emptiness It has about it this fraudulent quality because it is idolatry. Infidelity is inherently empty and disappointing. I'm not talking about sex within marriage. I'm talking about sex outside. It is emptiness. But the, the, the wrath of God is on those who he lets go his way, that he goes freely pursue your lusts. And it's a lifetime chase. Of emptiness, The person who's sleeping around biblically is not the freest person to enjoy their sexuality. They're the person who keeps pursuing something, keeps looking for something that they'll never find outside of knowing God and outside of experiencing the good gift of sex in the way that he prescribed. This is why verse 24 is so sad. God gave them up in their lust their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It's, it's, it, is, it is sad. It's sad. Tim Keller writes, God's judgment on godlessness and wickedness is to give us what we want. The things we serve will not free us, rather they control us. We have to have them. And since our hearts were made to be centered on God, since he is the only true provider of satisfaction and significance, they do not satisfy. We always feel we need more or something else. The tragedy of humanity is that we strive for and fail to find what we could simply receive and enjoy. The tragedy of humanity is that we strive for and fail to find what we could simply receive and enjoy. We suppress the truth which would free and satisfy us. That's why this is sad. Sexual sin is not just breaking God's rules. God just doesn't have a random list of sex rules that what's on the approved list and what's on the disapproved list and he's just like this distant god just looking waiting to catch people that just broke the rule. It's not just about breaking a rule. That's not what it's about. It's about suppressing the glorious truth that God rules and God is gracious and God is loving and all of our satisfaction is found in him. And when we turn from him and look to anything else to satisfy us, we are on the road to emptiness and the road to death. That's what it's about. It's about knowing God. It's about receiving His gifts. It's about being loved by Him, enjoying Him. It's about not turning our back on our purpose, but pursuing God for our purpose. Listen, those enslaved to sexual sin, both inside the church and outside the church, and we're going to talk in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about a way to help those of us inside the church uh, who are enslaved to sexual sin and have something practical. Um, tonight's much more of a 30,000-foot level. But those who, who inside and outside of the church, who are enslaved to sin, they need our compassion and not our self-righteous judgment. Because it is a life that is barren. They can, we can fool ourselves in sexual sin and say this is the greatest thing going. And at first, maybe it, it feels that way. We can, we can fool ourselves into thinking that. But it comes with a cost. And what is what is sad is that, that we miss out on what God has for us. Verses 25 through 27, the exact same thing. They knew God. They didn't worship God. They exchanged and worshiped idols. And God gave them over. Verse twenty. Uh, so, verse 19, we all know God, but we suppress the truth. Uh, verse 25, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So here's the whole loop again. They knew God, but they gave that up and served the creator. Uh, the, the creator, I'm sorry, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So in this in this situation, it's speaking again, same thing. Turn from God, exchange the truth of God for a lie, and God does the same thing. He gives them up. But this group of people are given up to dishonorable passions. What's he talking about? Well, specifically, he's speaking in the description about homosexual practice. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So he's using the term natural and unnatural, referring to how God's creation. God created Adam and Eve, He created the man and the woman. Man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to the woman, his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. A one-flesh relationship between a man and a woman is how God created. That's how God created uh, the sexual relationship. But he's saying in this situation, he let them pursue their passions, which were contrary to the way God created uh, things to be in nature. They're consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. I'm not going to spend any time on this because I'm going to do a whole message on homosexuality. But at this point, I just want to say, it's just one more example like the one we just saw. And by the way, if any of us felt, oh, Romans 1, he's going to give the homosexual message tonight, then hopefully this just shatters it. Because he didn't start there. He just started with sexual impurity, which covers everybody. Covers everybody. Now he's giving one specific example of sexual impurity. Um, which is uh, men passionately um, doing, pursuing shameless acts with other men and women the same with other women. So that, that, that's, that's what he talks about there. So I'm going to do a whole message, and I'm going to try to uh, bring conviction and compassion. And I'm going to try to answer all the questions that are out there, and we will look at this passage in, in some detail along with some others then. But tonight I just wanted to say this this the same thing. Turn from God, know God, turn from God, pursue idols, they worship the creation, he gives them over to their passion. What's the passion? In this case, it's same sex, same gender sex. Um, The actual practice of having sex with someone of the same gender. Verses 28, the same pattern again, but this time he goes beyond sexual sin of of impurity or of homosexual sex. He goes beyond that. And in 28, it says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, the same thing, God gave them up. This time to a debased mind of what not ought to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. What happens then? He then gives 21 sins. It's called a vice list. 21 sins. And so if someone doesn't see themselves on the sexual impurity list, if somebody doesn't see themselves on the more narrow specific expression of that homosexual sin list, then he gives this broad list evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So he gives 21 sins there. So to that, showing that everyone is affected, not just sexual desires. I'm looking at this passage because the first two sections were about sexual sin, and that's the series we're in. And the question is, what went wrong? Everything was created perfect, and then the fall. And now we all live with that temptation to know God but to turn from God and to pursue the creation instead of the cre- creator, instead of living in the way he causes lives, rather than taking his gifts and receiving them, and enjoying them, and turning back in worship to him for the gifts, we worship the gift rather than the giver. We chase the creation rather than the creator. And that's the nature of sexual sin. Not sexuality, not sex, but sexual sin. So how do we apply a passage like this? Well, the first thing I think, and we'll be done here, the first thing is find yourself in this list. We all wrestle with idolatry. And we should find ourselves in this list. And if you don't find yourself in this list, if you're religious and you didn't find yourself in this list, then read ch- the next verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because the judge practice the very same things. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So if we're running through the first part and you're thinking, well, I'm not sleeping around, uh, I'm not in bondage to pornography and masturbation, uh, I'm not sleeping with somebody I'm not married to, I don't have a, a wild mind that's looking at people and thinking sexual thoughts about them. Um, I'm not living my life in romantic fantasy. I'm glad we're having this sermon series for someone else. Well, Romans two says, well, for the one who judges in passing judgment, you condemn yourself. Judging others is always condemnatory to the self. You know, that whole thing, like where you point one finger, you have like three pointed back at yourself or whatever. That's always the way it is. Someone told me that was little. That's really true. I don't know if the thumbs just pointing out, but anyway, (laughs) are kind of down, But you're pointing at someone else about their sin, man, you got three right back at you. Because your very judgment of someone else's sin. Saw the passage about homosexuality? Wow, I don't struggle with that. That's those people. Well, you judge them, but you've got your own sins. And if you can't find them on the list of 21, then you may be worse than anything that was just mentioned. You may be more blinded than any of the other sins. If you can't locate yourself in the list of uh, 21 plus sexual sin, 22 sins and then he's going to go next to the jews and say you've got the law and you break the law and here's how you're all responsible for we have all sinned for all have sinned and come short of the glory of god chapter three and then he's going to tell us how we find forgiveness but before he tells us how to find forgiveness he's going to tell everyone that they are guilty and he's going to explain to us why because of idolatry idolatry this is the biblical way for interpreting our lives. It's not just breaking a list of rules. It's a motivation of the heart that's chasing something besides God. It's the motivation of the heart that looks for a God substitute. It's the motivation of the God of, of, of our hearts that looks not to God, but to what he has created. So we want to look at that and say, Lord, where, what's going on in my heart? Am I motivated to honor God. Do I see sexual temptation for me as a temptation to idolatry and not just something that's on a no-no list, though it is forbidden, but something that is a longing of my heart for something besides God? Do I see it that way? Number two, and this is the last point, we look to Jesus and his work. We will not, here's the good news, back to 16, here's the whole context. Righteousness has been provided apart from what we do that we receive it by faith. We will, if we're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you will never receive the judgment of God for your sins. You will not stand before God and experience his wrath and be cast away from him. You'll be welcomed into his presence. But I committed sexual sin, at least in my thoughts, if not in my actions. Probably both, but I, yes, I committed sexual sin. Well, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus didn't commit sexual sin, and if you believe in him, Jesus' purity is credited to your account. And so we read this passage knowing that there's no eternal wrath for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We are standing securely on the gospel. That is good news. That is permanent. That is eternal. And that is to motivate us to want to please the Lord with all of our heart, all our soul, all all our attitudes. We want to please him. So given that, We can ask the Lord, Lord, are there any competing desires in my heart against you? Yes, I believe in you. Yes, I want to follow you. But I have this wrestling in my heart to follow other things. Yes, I agree with what the guy's saying. But that doesn't mean that I still don't want to do what I'm not supposed to do. Lord, would you help me in the interior of my being, my heart? Would you reveal to me what I'm chasing? A a lot of the battle is understanding how the battle works. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, to understand how the flesh works, to understand how the devil works, to understand how, how uh, temptation works is huge. So just knowing what's going on inside of me and being aware of that allows me to come to the Lord and seek to find my satisfaction in him and not something else. It also, helps me to, it also helps me realize that I don't see it all. I don't always understand my motivation, but the Lord can show it to me. And it also gives me compassion on people who don't know the Lord because they don't see it at all. They don't see it at all. They're, I understand they're responsible. The Scripture says that. But they're still, they don't get it. They can't evaluate their own hearts. That's why when you say, what does the Scripture say, it doesn't matter to them. They don't see it, don't believe it. So we want to look to the Lord and we want to ask him, Tim Keller wrote this question. He says, what would it look like to depend on my creator in this area? So in the area of sexual temptation, what would it look like? Rather than think about that sexual pleasure that I'm thinking about, think about that romantic rendezvous. Think about, uh, ladies, the covetous sin that I wish my husband was like that husband over there, and I'm thinking about what it would be like to be married to him and to be with him, that sexual sin, uh, sexual coveting. Desire someone you're not married to, to be married to. So whatever it is, you know, fantasy and romance land or whatever it is thinking about somebody else, pornography, emotional attachment to someone that you're not married to, but they're married, or you're married, and you're developing an emotional bond. That, that, all that stuff counts in here. So in that, here's the question: What would it look like to depend on my creator in this area? So if I was depending on God? If I was desiring Him, what would it look like when that temptation comes to me? How would I love and feel and live differently if I praise the Creator at that point rather than serving the created things? So rather than saying, I need, I want, I desire that person, if you're married, that person that I'm not married to, rather than doing that, rather than looking to a, at a naked s- stranger on a screen... Rather than imagining romance with that guy, rather than whatever the category, rather than that, what would it look like right now if I was serving the Lord with my heart and not what he's provided? That person I'm not married to is a gift for someone else, to, if they're going to be married, to experience sexual union with, not me, to experience romance with, to experience companionship with not me. It would look like, Lord, what have you provided for me in my life? That what are the gifts you've given me that I'm to receive and treasure and turn back to you with gratitude and praise. Where am I supposed to cry out, Lord, help me in this area? Where am I supposed to confess and bring to the light with someone, how I am struggling. Listen, I had lunch with somebody this week, and I so appreciated This person's a friend. It wasn't somebody I just met for the first time. But in the, in the lunch, this person just said to me, so how are you doing? You're teaching about sexual sexuality and reading about it. So what tempta- how are you doing? Are you facing temptations during this season? How, how are you really doing? I thought, wow, that is, wh- that I felt so cared for. So love, what he was saying was, hey, you can bring out your struggles into the light. And this is a friend. I mean, it's not so, someone I would trust with, you know, a, a private temptation sharing that. I would trust him. But, I sh- but, but it, so that's what he asked. So it's bringing it out into the light. It's acknowledging. I have every sermon try to say it's, the ground is equal at the cross. We all struggle. And so if we're in Christ and we have his righteousness, it's safe to tell our struggle because we're safe with God eternally gripped by him. And that's another way that we find help. One of my goals in this series is to bring this topic out into the light so that we can share and so that we can help everyone and we can grow. And we have some tangible ways we're going to do that coming up that I'll talk to you about in a few weeks. So God created sex perfectly, at least for biblical purposes, if not more, and an overarching purpose to glorify him. But in Genesis 3, there's the fall. And since then, all of our desires have been bent and things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so we wrestle with not looking to the true God, but chasing other gods and idols. And the grace of God calls us to turn to him in repentance. The judgment of God allows us to go in our way. If you're here tonight and you feel convicted, that is, you feel in a good way, a holy, righteous conviction, a holy guilt for what you've done, that is the mercy of God. God loves you so much, he's not letting you go. And I hope he will torment graciously, torment your conscience until you tell someone and get it out and experience freedom. That would be the mercy of God. To let you go and dull your conscience, that's judgment. But to awaken your conscience, to call you to be honest, transparent, truthful, and repent, that's the kindness of God. May we do it. And may we look to him who forgives us. Look, we're going to close with a song. let uh, I'm going to invite the band up. Let's pray and we'll, we'll sing and we're done. Father, we come to you tonight and we realize every one of us in this room have looked to other gods. You are glorious. We know you as creator. We know you as redeemer. You have forgiven all of our sins. And yet we're chasing little sexual thrills here and there, illicit, forbidden thrills. Lord, we're chasing a glance, a peep, a look, an experience, an emotion, a feeling. We're chasing a thrill Lord, we're chasing all these little things and we've taken our eyes off You. And we're not receiving sex as a gift that You've given to be used in Your way for Your glory. But we're chasing our own way. And we ask that You would just help us, that You would rescue us, that You would get us off that path. Lord, please don't don't give any of us over to our lusts. Torment us, convict us by the Holy Spirit. Awaken us. Do not allow us to go down the path of darkness. Do not allow us to head into destruction. Rescue us. Forgive us. Welcome us home, Father. Embrace us. Call us back to yourself, for you love us and care for us and have brought this very passage to us tonight to call us back to yourself. So we come to you, and we ask for forgiveness, and we receive forgiveness. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.